Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is episode 63, um, and we're dedicating this whole episode to the Goodwood Motor Circuit. Um, and I'm going to pose the question right at the start, is this the UK's best racetrack? How do you define best? Well, we'll come back to that. But anyway, um, Goodwood Motor Circuit... Uh, Andrew, that place has got a special place in your heart, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, it's got a special place. Uh, yes, I've been, I've been lucky enough to be racing there since it reopened in, in 1998. Before that, um, I think the first time I ever drove a car on a track was at Goodwood. Yeah, that's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's certainly the first time I ever fell off a track was at Goodwood. Um, and <laughs> and, and uh, yes, and, and, and on the same day. Um, so yeah, I mean Goodwood is uh, it, it is as close to my heart as any circuit in the world. Definitely, uh, I, the, the, there's very little about the place I don't absolutely love. So I'm looking forward to this one. And it, I mean, as we know, it, racing, um, sort of contemporary modern day racing, was going on there in the late 40s, 50s, and um, the, the first half of the 60s. So that's your era, isn't it? That's the, the era that you really <laughs> you love. You make me sound so, so old. No, well, no, no, no. I mean, it's it, you. I don't know, I suppose there's a romance for you about that whole era. And the, yeah. the point being, I suppose, is that if there's a topic that we can tackle on this podcast um, for which you need to do very little or no preparation, it's Goodwood, isn't it? It's all well, up I hope, so well, I that's just... what we're, we're, we're about to find out because I have done no preparation whatsoever. <laughs> so I just need to download you. Um, we'll get back to Goodwood in a moment, but first we just need to do a couple of minutes on the Intercooler app. Um, we're getting new subscribers every day a good number of new subscribers every day it's growing nicely so thank you everybody for signing up um i think we've had some good stuff up there this week we we had karen chandock on who are the best racing drivers he was 
sort of posing a question. Are rally drivers the best? Can you compare drivers from different categories? Um, some good insight from him there. Andrew English has been to the Great British Car Journey. It's a museum with a twist. Um, it's, it's, it's the story of the, the British car industry told through the cars themselves, and you can actually go there and drive some of them. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a load of sort of charmingly rubbish um sort of Leyland stuff from the 70s and 80s you know it's, it's the cars your dad drove isn't it I think that's the kind of the, the the hook for it um and because these cars have all basically you know dissolved into rust or whatever you just don't see them around anymore I, th- I think that they have I think they have a charm today they probably didn't have at the time um and you know they've got a huge amount of space up there and you can just go up there and nick the keys and go for a bimble about I just th- I think it's a lovely idea it is a lovely idea um and more recently, you've published a story which is effectively it's you driving to the end of your driveway in a cage room. <laughs> yes, yes, it's fifteen hundred words on me deciding to go for a drive in my cage room. Um, it's all about the magic of driving for the sake of driving, and how it's not just about you know when you're up in the mountains giving it loads. It's about the anticipation. It's about the processes. It's about how you feel um the build up to it just getting the thing started getting it out your shed uh all the little you know rituals that we probably all have if you're sad like me um and it's kind of part one of a story the the part two will be um when i actually um sort of talk about driving the car but no the whole thing, the whole thing is basically me not driving a car or preparing to drive a car um but it's you know i i, I think it's i hope it's got a sort of certain resonance um, to other car-loving people out there, but go take a look. Yeah, that's right. It's a slightly curious premise, but it's a great story. Um, okay, well, go and download the app. Just go and check it out. You can start your free trial. Um, we think you'll like it. It's easy, easy to cancel if you don't. Um, but just go and search the intercooler on whichever app store you use. I think you now only have to put in the space IN, um, and the search function will find the intercooler for you. It'll be right there. That's quite good, isn't it? Um, just, just go and download it. Okay, let's get back to Goodwood then. Um, why, why now? Uh, it's not as though there's an event there this weekend or next. Um, actually, it's just because recently, in the last few days, BAC um, have released uh, some footage of a lap time that they recorded there with Ollie Webb driving of the Mono R, um, setting, it's, it's an unofficial lap record really, um, setting a 1 minute 15 second lap time. It's a road legal car on road legal tyres, uh that's pretty impressive so fast it is so (laughs) fast you see there's yeah for road cars there's always been this sort of bar to duck under and if you can get under that bar you can you know the car can be considered to be a really really quick car and the bar is 130 yeah (laughs) if you could i mean i can remember oh years back uh, taking an Aston Martin V12 Vantage down there. Um, probably not ter- not on terribly sticky tyres. But the idea just being to see how close I could get to the original uh, lap record set in the 1960s by Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart. Um, and I think, I think I did a 27 and really scared myself and just thought, that's, that's fast enough. And it, these guys have gone 12 seconds quicker than that around that circuit. I mean, that is, I mean, you know, one, if you know Goodwood, and I'm sure there'll be any number of people uh, listening to this who've not only been there, but been around it, done track days there and so on. Um, that's a crazy time. 
that's a crazy crazy time for a road car on road tires um yeah fair play so it, it i mean i find this so interesting the, the thing about setting a lap time in any car really around goodwood is that the place has not changed okay they they stuck a chicane in there in 1952 the chicane is still there but the circuit layout is the same identical um, and it it might be that a curb stone has moved here and there and there's a bit more runoff area or whatever um but the circuit itself is unchanged and that the makes it you drive around almost yeah yeah makes it almost unique doesn't it among certainly well circuits anywhere i suppose there must be some that are unchanged but the vast majority have been tweaked and fiddled with and opened out and widened and you know sanitized and whatever of, of, of circuits that are in you know regular use and of international fame i'd be surprised if there is another one in the world of that age i'm obviously you could build one last week and say oh it hasn't changed but one of that age since 1952 which has gone for whatever that is it's nearly 70 years it's nearly 70 years unchanged i can't believe there's another circuit in the world that's like that Mm. so i mean it's it's a unique thing and it just means that we can start looking at how a modern very high performance road car compares to a Formula One car from a particular era or from a Can-Am car or whatever else it might be. So it's just, it's a unique thing and just quite an intriguing proposition. So I've been diving into it a little bit and I've um, I've written a story for the Intercooler. It's, if you want the full story, it's on the app now. Um, I think it's it's quite an interesting piece and it's just sort of made possible by the fact that Goodwood is this freak among racetracks for not having changed for decades. Um I, I did speak to Ollie Webb, the driver, um, and he, he said, the, the thing is, when a, a car manufacturer of any, um, of any flavor, any size, sets a lap record and announces a lap record, we all assume that they've been there for three days, dialing the car in, fiddling with tire pressures, waiting for optimal conditions and all that stuff. But actually, they were just there anyway, doing a, a customer car handover, um, and they had their monoir, and so they just thought, well, okay, off you go, Ollie see what she'll do um and that's what they came away with a one minute 15 and ollie reckons that they could go much faster with uh he said the tire the the gear ratios weren't quite right so they they, and you know fiddle with the setup all that sort of stuff they could find plenty of lap time um it was interesting he also said that because the, the mono r is not a downforce car um and and it doesn't have stacks of power it's still got a naturally aspirated four cylinder engine um, and so actually it's not ideally suited to a circuit where you're flat out going very, very fast for long periods of time. It's actually better suited to circuits with very tight corners because then it's, it's lightweight um, construction. It helps it under braking, helps it under acceleration. Um, really at Goodwood, I think you want lots of downforce and lots of power, don't you? Yeah, you do. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Um, and, you know, it's all the more remarkable that it could do such a time you know at a circuit to which it, it clearly is well suited but nothing like as well suited as it might be to something you know slower and tighter definitely yeah so i've for the story i've looked into some other fast road legal car lap times around goodwood and also dug out some uh, some lap times from when formula one cars were racing there we'll come back to that um and there are, there are some just some great stories surrounding lap times and goodwood potentially apocryphal we don't know how true they are but 
hey, they're great stories, so why not retell them? So the, the, the article is up on the app now. Go and have a look. Um, but let's get back to, to Goodwood itself and just sort of talk about the history of the place. Um, now, I know that all this stuff is up in your head anyway, Andrew, but I've got it written down in front of me. Um, and the, the place was, during the Second World War, it was known as RAF West Hampton, which was um, a relief airfield for RAF Tangmere nearby. So when, when Tangmere was at full capacity, uh, planes could come back and land at West Hampton. It was a it was a sort yeah, of or, for or, emergency or when, use. Or when Tangmere had had you know had 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 the, the hell bombed out of it and there were holes yeah. on the runway. Um, yeah, and they, then they had other places they could go to. Goodwood was one of them. And the like several other UK circuits, the Goodwood Motor Circuit uses the old perimeter road around the outside um, of the, and and that gives it a, a very distinctive shape, doesn't it? And it's a shape that's quite similar to. Thruxton, quite similar to Castle Coombe, quite similar to the early Silverstone layouts. Um, this is, these are not coincidences. No, and it means that these circuits have a very particular character, doesn't it? Um, it means they're very, very high speed. They're, they're flowing, fast layouts where you really have to be confident in the car, commit, um, and it, just, it, it makes them a, a, a very particular challenge. It also, I mean, the, the, there's a clue in that word perimeter, isn't it? You know, they the circuits ran around the edge of the facility, which also means that in all these places, there's not really anywhere to go if you fall off because you're already on the perimeter. You're already at the edge. And after the edge, you, you know, you just get, well, you just get a bank. Um, and it, it, all those places you mentioned, well, apart from obviously Silverstone, which had changed so much, but Coombe and Thruxton um, and Goodwoods, um, it's not just the track, is it? Uh, it's the it's the whole mental challenge of thinking. You know, if I get it wrong now, um, it's not just a question of you know of you know driving off the circuit and come back on again. You know, it, it, it it's probably going to be expensive and it might hurt. Um, and that's that's you know that in it's as, as much as the challenge of just negotiating your way around a place that is as as rapid as Goodwood. There's also mentally dealing with that knowledge that it's really, you know, very rarely it has a, you know, a particularly happy ending if you if you fall off there at high speed too. Mm. Oh, crikey! What I, what I love about those circuits is that nobody has designed those track layouts. Nobody has gone. Oh, I think we should have a left hander here. It's just following what was there, um, and it's. I don't know really. It it just means that they they have a very different character to somewhere like. Uh, a current day Snetterton or something, which has been very deliberately laid out. Um, and I just think it's great. It, it, it also means that it suits cars with old tyres that inherently want to slide. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's very interesting. But actually, if you look at the, you know, the greatest circuits around the world, you think about, you know, you think about Spa, you think about Le Mans or many of the circuits we talk about. I mean, those are all circuits that just happened, you know, um, I guess the Nürburgring is probably the exception, isn't it? The Nürburgring is the one circuit which was actually designed by some certifiable lunatic um, in the 1920s because, you know, well, it was, it was done as a sort of compulsory employment program at the time, wasn't it? But, I mean, that is, you know, an example of a circuit that was designed and is incredible. But, no, the vast majority of them just happened. It's remarkable. 
Yeah, it's cool. Um, so it's a 2.4, excuse me, 2.4 mile track. First used for racing on the 18th of September 1948. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the, the racing that went on there because, I mean, it, it, it drew the biggest names in motorsport. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, okay, so it never held a world championship Formula One race. Uh, it held lots of Formula One races, but no one ever scored any championship points racing there. Didn't stop the whole world turning up there. Um, a, that was back in the day when people just raced when there was racing to do because A, they loved it. B, there was start money. Um, C, races had you know an individual prestige to them, which made manufacturers want to go and do them. Um, so, you know, so they all raced there. They all raced there. Um, and yeah, and it started, uh, it was started by the current Duke of Richmond's grandfather, um, Freddie March. Um, who was just a complete petrol head and just loved it and just had this mad idea of going racing around, you know, this now rather underused airfield that was, you know, stuck out the back of the estate. Um, and as soon as it started, it just captured something um, and they were overwhelmed. They just had, you know, they just had something absolutely amazing. And you know, if you think about the people who raced there in the early days, you know, some of the pe- people, people like, I don't know, uh, Sterling, uh, Derek Bell, John Surtees, they all did their first ever car races um, at Goodwood. Uh, some of them had their first wins at Goodwood. Uh, and from there on in, in, in the history of British motorsport, it is so, from there until it shut in 1966, uh, it was so much part, frankly, it was absolutely as much part of the British motorsport calendar as the British Grand Prix. Um, and some really, really important stuff went on there. You know, they had the nine hour races there in the early 1950s, which was as close to a Le Mans type event as, uh, as, as, as Britain has, has ever held, I guess, um, in terms of its sort of prestige. Um, there were some amazing battles uh, and things, you know, important stuff happened. Like, you know, it may not have held the Formula One Grand Prix, but it was for a while uh, part of the official uh, World Sports Car Championship. And in fact, indeed, in 1959, Aston Martin won the World Sports Car Championship um, for the first time after 10 years of trying at Goodwood. And the the crazy thing about that was they hadn't even intended to enter it um, because what they wanted to do was win Le Mans. And they tried and they tried and they tried and they just hadn't done it. They'd come second three times in the 50s. Uh, And then in 1959, they thought, right, okay, we're going to stop everything. We're just going to win Le Mans. We're going to focus everything on that. But Sterling um, wanted to do the Nürburgring 1000Ks because he'd won it the year before. Um, and he persuaded them to lend him the spare car on the basis that he would pay, pay for it. He, he would pay the entry fee. Uh, Sterling said, I'll do that if I can keep the prize money. Uh, and he went and won it. Um, then there was Lamore and Aston Martin won that. And because there were only five rounds in the championship, they suddenly discovered that with one round left, the TT at Goodwood that they could win the championship. They'd never intended to end it if they just won a Goodwood. And the DBR1, which was their car at the time, um, was particularly well-suited to Goodwood because it didn't have the power of the Ferraris, but that sort of, it handled beautifully on one of those really, really fast-flowing... You know, if you're at Le Mans, you just want power, you know, down the straight, bang, uh, which it didn't have. But on flowing high-speed circuits like that, um, the DBR1 was the class of the field. So Sterling, Julie disappeared and all was looking good until he brought the car um no in fact his teammate Roy Salvadori brought the car into the pits and um the whole thing went up in flames the car literally you know the pits went up the car went up Salvadori went up I mean thankfully he wasn't too badly hurt um 
but they thought, well, that's it. Um, the car's gone. It wasn't actually. <laughs> they actually discovered that the car wasn't that badly damaged and it could have rejoined, but they just thought, oh, no, they didn't have any pits. They had nothing. Um, but what there was, was further down the pit lane, there was a privateer. I think it was one of the Whitehead brothers who had his own Aston Martin, his own private Aston Martin in the race. And they wandered down there and said, would you mind terribly retiring your car so we can use your pit so we've got somewhere to park? And they then got, I think it was Carol Shelby, who was in one of their other works cars, who was nowhere, he was like sort of third or fourth, to come in and said, out you get, we're putting Sterling in. And back then you could put drivers in it. And Sterling rejoined the race, nowhere, and being Sterling, went off and won it. And as he won it, he won Aston Martin, the World Sports Car Championship too. So it's just one of those great motor racing stories, the likes of which, you know, I just, I just absolutely love. Um, and you know, and there are plenty of others too. You know, in nineteen, when was it? Nineteen. It's not nice. Sterling won the TT there, so the Tourist Trophy race was held there in the late fifties and the early sixties. And Sterling won it, not just in the DBR one in fifty nine, but then it became a GT race in sixty and sixty one, and he won it in uh, Rob Walker Ferrari two fifty short wheelbases. Um, and on one of those races, he was so far ahead, he was in such a different league that he was listening to Raymond Baxter commentating on him winning the race, sitting in the Ferrari on the car radio as he's going round. Um, just brilliant. It's just absolutely That's brilliant. Great. Yeah, That's it's great. very, very cool. Um, and yeah, and, and you know, I, could, I could go on relentlessly, but it gives you a kind <laughs> of idea of the sort of flavour of the place, I hope. Okay, so the, the F1 races that were held there, they, as Andrew said, they weren't world championship races, but they, they drew the big, the big names, and it was known as the Glover Trophy, or the Sunday Mirror Trophy. Um, and the last one was in 1965. Um, I just want to read the results sheet out to you. Um, I won't read every name, but just list, it's, it's a, it is a who's who of um, racing drivers from that era. Um, Jackie Stewart put it on pole, uh, but he had a, a camshaft fail on the first lap, so he, he retired very early on. It was then won by Jim Clark. Um, and second was Graham Hill, and third was Jack Brabham, fourth was Bruce McLaren, fifth was Joe Bonnier, sixth was Richard Atwood, uh, and then you keep going down the list and you see Dan Gurney, Jochen Rint, Joe Siffert, Mike Halewood. It's, I mean, the big names from racing in that era. And I'd, uh, you can just imagine what it must have been like to have gone down to Goodwood to see all those guys racing. Um, I just... I would love to have been there. It would have been amazing to see those cars and those guys. And, you know, and they, they, they would have really, really tried. I can remember talking to, with this story that I did when I tried to get close to Jackie's lap record back then, I can remember ringing him up and saying, you know, what was it about those cars? Because, you know, there I was with a six-litre V12 Aston Martin with modern brakes and modern suspension and big fat tyres. Um, and Jackie was in a normally aspirated 1.5 litre car on bicycle tyres like this and just saying, I just don't understand. And, you know, and he was too modest to say, well, yeah, well, you're Andrew Franklin, I'm Jackie Stewart. That's one fairly <laughs> large reason I went a bit faster. Um, but what he did say was, you know, you don't underestimate just how hard they tried, not just in the race. But in setting the car up, they would test and they would test and they would test. So the suspension was always optimal. They would bring innumerable gear sets down. And he was saying that they would actually gear the car depending on which way down the straight the wind was blowing. 
So if it was like if, if if the wind was behind you, you put a slightly higher fifth, or in fact, in this case, probably sixth gear in the car. Um, that was the attention to detail, even back then, whatever it was, fifty-five years ago, fifty-six years ago, that they were taking to optimize the performance um, of their car. And it kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Just what might happen if one day someone was to put a modern Formula One car around there with that attention to detail? Just set it up. Just do it once. Just do just 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 do an out, a flyer, and an in. Um, what it would do? No, oh, it's such a shame that we're unlikely to see that happen. But just imagine there'd be so much PR in that. Why can't Merck just send a car down there, put Lewis in, and just see what happens? It'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? So I, 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 I've, I have wondered it so often. I've suggested it. So I mean, because you know, I, I work for. I, I have a column that I write for that I've written for Goodwood uh, every Friday for years and years and years. So I've been touched them, and I've often said, "Should why not just do it?" And you know, and, and they always go, "Oh, yeah, it's a good idea," but they haven't done it. And I just wonder whether they're not just sort of keeping it up their sleeve, um, just to do. I mean, you'd sell the place out if that's all that happened there that day. Just one yeah. lap. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. People would just want to know, wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, okay. So when when Clark and Moss and Co were racing there in '65, uh, sorry, when when Clark and Stewart yes. and Co were racing there in 1965, um, I think you've said you've told me before that they were effectively built to Formula Two spec. They were a little 1.5 liter. Well, cars, the engines were. Yeah. So it's in 1961. Um, because the two and a half litre cars were, I mean, people were dying, frankly, and they just wanted to slow the whole thing down. And back then, Formula 2 was a 1.5 litre formula. So they just said, as from 1961, Formula 1 runs to Formula 2 regs. And from 61 to the end of 65, that's what happened. And then in 66, you know, we know the three litre V8s came in and V12s and, you know, the rest is history. But yeah, they were all just normally aspirated 1.5s. Mm, so not particularly powerful. Do you, have a, do you have a BHP figure in your head for one of those? Yeah, the best of them were doing, I mean, more than you'd think. Mm. Um, the best of them were doing, you know, so the Climax uh, and the BRMs were probably doing about 210 horsepower mm. out of a 1.5, good, um, yeah. spinning it at about 11 and a bit thousand revs. Mm. So, you know, proper, proper, but um, yeah, but still proper for a normally aspirated 1.5 litre engine 55 years ago. Um, it's not much by today's standards. It's, you know, it's not much by Golf R standards, is it? Let alone you know, racing car <laughs> standards. But um, back then it was, it was pretty impressive. Uh, so it was in 1962 that Sterling had his crash there um, at St. Mary's. Uh, and it, I mean, it ended his career really, didn't it? His, his top flight racing career. It, it 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 absolutely ended his career. I mean, for, you know, he only raced professionally once more after that, which was a rather misguided attempt to uh, to do touring cars with Martin Brundle in Audi in the in nineteen eighty and eighty one, I think. Um, yes, and it, it, it was a career ender for him. But it was also, um, and I did once put this to him, and I've talked about that on this uh, podcast before. It was also probably a lifesaver. It almost killed him, but it almost certainly saved him as well. Because he reckoned his plan was to keep racing into the mid seventies. I mean, he he, well, I mean, I think he was thirty two when he had his accident, and he was very mindful of the fact that his old mate and teammate Fangio was winning world championships at forty seven. So he thought, well, I should be able to do that. So they, he he would have been thinking in sixty two, well, I've got another fifteen years, so I'll still be not kicking about in the mid seventies. And you know, he first started racing in nineteen forty eight. I don't think 
the chances, I mean, someone would be able to work out the odds of someone racing at that level that often for that long over what would have been near 30 year career. The chances of surviving that I think would have been astronomically small. Um, so, you know, I did once put it to him that that crash actually saved his life and he didn't deny it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. Do you know what the circumstances of that crash were? I know exactly what the, well, no, <laughs> I, I know what the circumstances of that crash were um, as much as anybody does. And the truth is that nobody knows. Um, he was, he was in a thing called a Lotus 18 stroke 21. Um, and he'd had a problem with it. So he was nowhere in the race. Um, but as always was the case with Sterling, he was always flat out. Um, he wanted to get the fastest lap. So he's coming back through the field and he came out of Madrix, which is turn one, uh, went through, um, Ford water kink and was overtaking Graham Hill. Um, and he was overtaking Graham Hill on the outside and, something happened whether graham hill didn't see him and moved over whether there was a mechanical failure in the grass nobody knows all that knows all all that is known is that sterling found himself on the grass traveling at who knows 120 130 miles an hour um and you know if you just go down the grass and you don't turn into the corner you just go head on into the bank um which is what happened um i think the only thing that you can rule out is driver error on Sterling's part. part. Um, I don't think that that is in any way conceivable. I don't think anyone ever suggested that Sterling made a mistake. I don't see actually how on that part of the track you really could make a mistake. Um, So something happened. It was a mechanical failure. Maybe it was Graham Hill didn't see him coming past. Um, Who knows? Um, But as we know, you know, he he did go into the bank um, at horrendous speed. The car penknifed around him, you know, big brain injury, lots of broken bones. Um, Game over, career-wise. He used to show people the steering wheel, didn't he? With a huge fold in it caused by his head hitting it. Well, I don't know where it was his head. I think it was, oh, maybe it was. There was another one. He had in his downstairs loo in Shepherd Street um, where he lived. He had two steering wheels. He had that steering wheel and another one from an accident he had at Spa in 1960, which is also another big kink in it. And that kink was made by his leg as he came out the car. It just, you know, banged the steering wheel. Yeah, well, funnily enough, yes, (laughs) that broke up a few bones too um but he was he was always very sort of you know um funny about these things he was very happy to to show people these things he wasn't in the least bit squeamish about it um okay well we we should move it on a little bit and it was in 66 that the racing stopped at goodwood um now i've got an answer here but i want i'm just curious to know what your understanding of why they had to stop racing there was it was it was just getting it was just getting crazy um it was just getting the cars were getting too fast. And you don't forget, we're now talking about three-litre cars. Um, three-litre, you know, 400-horsepower cars. So almost double the power that the cars had um, the year before. And I think that um, the Duke felt that the circuit had had its best days. And to keep it going would be to take unnecessary risks with people's lives. I mean, you know, there had already been some big accidents. Their lives had already been lost there. Um, And I think he just felt that um, it was just too much. 
Um, and yeah, I, I think sadly, but probably rightly, um, shut the shop. So yeah, 66, no more racing there, but it was used for testing. Yeah. Um, buy some quick stuff as well. Properly um, quick stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We, and particularly Can-Am cars. Um, and I mean, there are plenty of rumors, aren't there, about the lap times achieved by those Can-Am cars during that era. Um, some rather fast ones. Yeah. So, um, and we must, um, while we're talking about this, we must pause a moment to remember Bruce McLaren, who died in a Can-Am car um, in 1970, an M8D, um, when a bit of bodywork came off. Um, and he, he, was, he was so unlucky. He was going down the main back straight. Uh, and there was just one marshal's post in the middle of the straight. Um, and he just went straight into it. Um, you know, a bit earlier, a bit later, he, would have been, he wouldn't have even damaged the car. It was just horrendous bad luck. Um, but yes, moving on, um, you know, him and Denny Hume, when they were testing those massive Chevy-powered V8 McLaren Can-Am cars, uh, you know, I, 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 they were certainly regularly going under one-minute tens. Um, you hear stories of 103s, 104s, 105s, and, you know, frankly, I believe them. Um, I think there was, I think they did do a media day um, where they put some journalists in the passenger seats of these things and journalists were taken around by Denny Hume at, you know, 170 miles an hour in a, in a whatever. Um, and even then, you know, they were doing 10-somethings. Um, and, you know, this is half a century ago. Um, and, you know, the cars would have had, I mean, it depends what you mean by downfalls. I mean, back then they would have been, oh my God, this thing's got so much downfalls. By modern standard it would be well no it really hasn't i mean it might not have much lift um but in terms of positive positive downfalls there wouldn't have been huge amounts but they were so fast they were so grunty um and they had these massive tires on them and yeah they were very very rapid machines so there was some testing going on there but that did again that came to an end in the in the 80s i think you said um, i'm not sure was- the, the, sooner or later the noise thing got in the way yeah. uh, and it all had to stop uh, and then it was just used for, you know, for track days. And it became a very sorry, dilapidated um, version of its once glorious former self. Um, you know, I can remember going down there for some, well, say, you know, the first ever time I ever drove on a track uh, would have been in about 84 or 85. And you just go there um, and you go through the tunnel into the paddock and there, there was nothing there. I mean, the old buildings were still sort of dotted around the place, but it was just... Okay, I wouldn't say it was quite derelict, but it was certainly very dilapidated, very shabby. Um, the track was still wonderful, and you'd just get on it, pay a few quid, and blunder around. Um, and even even then, I can remember thinking, A, this is very sad, but B, just thinking of that sense of location. I'm still driving around this track that Stuart and Hill and Clark and Sterling you know, my heroes, you know, this is where these guys were at their best. These are the guys where they really showed what they were made of. Uh, and there was me and a falling off on a 205 GTI or whatever, um, on exactly the same bit of turf. And it just, it just seemed, it seems remarkable even to think about it now, uh, let alone to, you know, to actually go and do it then. Oh, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> and so it was in 1998 that racing returned to Goodwood. Yeah. Um, and I don't know when it was really updated that place and made beautiful again because if you go there now it, it's really beautifully presented um, yeah I mean it, it, I, it, it, it was done for that original meeting in 1998 um, so 
the whole idea so when the current duke uh, the then um earl of march uh lord march um when he moved into the goodwood estate um he just decided that his mission was to get the motor circuit reopened and he knew it would take a bit of time um and what he also wanted was to really build up a head of steam before that happened um and he knew the planning and the changes that would need to be made would take not months but years but he wanted to get motorsport back to goodwood so he had an idea for a little garden party which was called the festival of speed and we know how that turned out that started in 93 i think um and he did that for five years by which stage it was you know one of the biggest frankly biggest sporting events of any kind are on the calendar um, which did all sorts of things it's um it provided the money to transform the race circuit it gave him time to get the permissions that he needed um it gave him the credibility to get the backing that um that he required and it just got the whole idea of goodwood front and center in the minds of the car loving public in a way that it hadn't been since the mid-1960s um and yeah so you know obviously work has gone on since but i mean i can remember because i was lucky enough to race in that first revival um going down there and going in there and just being completely and utterly blown away i mean one of the most remarkable things i have ever seen in my career um was going into goodwood that day and seeing what they had done to it uh i was the editor of motorsport which is why i'd 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 been able to blag myself a ride in something um and yeah he set a template that year which you know has worked so well um ever since and that it was such a gutsy thing to do it was so brave in many ways more brave um than originally opening the circuit in 1948 um and to do it in such a wholehearted, such an utterly committed way. I mean, this was no, you know, toe dip exercise, just seeing if the concept worked. And if it did, then maybe we'll do it properly in a couple of years time. This was right. We're doing this completely committed, 100% full on. We're just going to do the best historic motor racing events. So much better, so much more creative, imaginative, beautiful, atmospheric, enthusiastic, varied than anything else that had ever been anywhere in the world. Um, and we're just going to kind of hope that people buy into it. Um, and, you know, we, and we know, you know, we know from the fact that the revival, that the circuit in its second generation has now been going for really quite a lot longer than it did in its first. We know that the proof of, you know, the, 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 the proof of that was, was made very quickly. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there's a, Whenever you go there, there's a sense that it, it is now how Moss and Clark and Stuart and, and Hill will have known it. Um, and it's, it just feels like a, a sort of time warp throwback thing. It's, it does. I love being there. Um, I've driven sort of pathetically few laps of that place. Um, and it's, it's, it, it seems like a, an intimidating track to me, the, the kind of place where you need plenty of confidence. I, I always go around those first couple of corners, never really knowing where I'm supposed to be. And at times it's blind and you can't see where the track goes. So it's, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a proper challenge. But I just want you to talk me through a flying lap of Goodwood. And I don't know what you're in, but it's something a bit old with lots of power, no downforce and not a great deal of grip. Um, and you've come out of the chicane and you're flying across the start-finish line yep. down towards okay. the first corner. Where are you okay. putting the car? 
Um, so obviously you come out of the chicane on the right hand side of the track and you want to be over on the left um, for Madrid. So let's say we're in, let's go for something quite tricky, a Ferrari 750 Monza that I, I, I was lucky enough to race there uh, a, a few times. So uh, you come out of the chicane in third, fourth, fifth, and then you're back into fourth because it's quite a short box. Um, for the right-hander into Madgwick. And the car, the, the, the track goes over a rise and there, there are very definitely two apexes, but you don't have to hit the first one. And in fact, I, tr- I try quite hard not to because I tend to think it spits you out a bit early and I'm a bit scared and I don't want to be too close to the edge of the track on the exit. So the thing to do is nail the second apex. And then if you can do that, um, and then you can power on and you can drift the car out to the left-hand side of the track. And that's um, that's actually... As long as you understand, as long as you get the positioning, actually, that's really quite straightforward. Then you've got the Ford Water kink, which is just one of those things where whether it is flat or not just depends on, you know, the car you're in, the mood you're in. Um, and in the Ferrari, it was probably not quite flat. Um, it was, it wouldn't have been a brake, um, but it would have been, a lift, maybe even just a confidence lift if you got it absolutely lined up. But the problem is that the track falls away a bit at the exit and the left-hand side, just it just comes rushing, the edge of the track just comes rushing up at you and you're going so, you're going as fast as the car will go pretty much then. Um, and that's just properly scary. And so I'm always, I'm, I'm probably a bit too timid through there. Uh, but anyway, you're then back on the gas going down to the right-hander, which people, some people call no name because it doesn't officially have a name, but is known as the right-hander going to St. Mary's, which is where Sterling had his accident on the left. Um, and most people um, position themselves um, on the right-hand side of the track because then you get a sort of straight braking area into it. I think if you've got a really well-set-up car, you can keep to the left a bit, but the braking area is then curved. And if you're in an old shed, um, braking and turning can somehow sometimes be um a bit tricky um and then in the ferrari you're fifth back down into fourth um into the right hand a very very quick corner of the right hand again much quicker it's the corner i think where you can probably save the most time because it's much quicker than most people think the problem with it it's got a much slower left coming up immediately afterwards so you can't do anything with that extra speed you have to lose it almost immediately but again you have it, it pays to be brave because again the left hand side of the track just seems a bit scarily close and then you've got a break and then you're yeah fourth through the right and then into third so i'm pulling back because it's got a dog leg box um and some people say actually you should get a wheel up on a curb there because that kind of pulls the car into the apex and you get a lot more grip because i'm always in somebody else's car i don't do that so i get as close to the curb as i can and then you power on hard and drift it out and the the track then goes down and slightly up and so you can kind of use the rise to get the car over to the right hand side and then a quick squirt up to fourth and then back to third for lavent um which is you know, it's the most important corner on the track. It's the easiest corner on the track, but it's the most important because it leads onto the big straight. Um, two apexes. Um, and I think the mistake a lot of people make, and, and I say this absolutely as one of them, is because it's it's actually quite a safe, safe corner because it's not very fast and there's there's a bit of space to go. That's the one where you really want to do that and, 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 and have fun and go sideways and everything else. But all the time you're doing that, you're losing speed down the straight. So try to resist you know your your inner idiot um and just try to keep it um just think about traction 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 it's all about getting back on the power as soon as you can. i mean the ferrari was very good at that because although it had a a very torquey engine it had a transaxle it had a gearbox between the rear wheels so you could get back on the power quite early um 
and then just third, fourth, fifth down the straight. There's a kink halfway down the straight, um, which in the wet is actually a proper corner. In the dry, it's easy flat. And then it's just a question of bravery under brakes. In the Ferrari, you've got drums, um, which they're actually pretty good for drum brakes, but they need a bit of managing. So you can't just mash them. Um, because what the problem with those drums is once they go, they stay gone. Um, they don't sort of come back to you. So you have to manage them through the course of the race. Um, it's a bit different in qualifying. You can lean on them a bit harder. There's a bit of curbing on the left-hand side, which is usually about when you'd start in a car like that, you'd think about starting to brake. And then fifth, either fourth, maybe third, probably no fourth for woodcuts, um, which is the penultimate corner. So it's the one before the chicane. Uh, miss the first apex completely. Uh, if you hit the first apex, you're going to go spinning off on the left-hand side. So almost drive around the outside of the track, nail the second exit, um, slide up to the exit, and then a naggy, tiny little straight uh, up to the chicane, um, fourth, third chicane, off, another lap. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and you're on pole. Congratulations. <laughs> if only. I was third in that car in the, in, in the last race I did in that. So, um, Yes. Good stuff. Well, that was impressive. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you to do that. That was all off the top of your head. That's impressive. If you get to do something like that at a place like that, in a car like that, it does tend to stay with you. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. It's the sort of thing that is easily forgotten. So at the start of this episode, I, I posited that maybe Goodwood is the UK's best circuit. But actually, I, I won't ask you that. I'll just ask you if it's your favourite circuit in the UK. Yeah, it is. It is because you know there are bits of other circuits I absolutely adore. The Beckett's complex at Silverstone is just mega. Um, Crane occurs at Donington, um, out of this world. There, there are all sorts of bits of other circuits that I love. But if you could say to me one more lap and that's it, you're never going to drive around a track again. Where, where do you want it to be? I'd want it to be in something really powerful at Goodwood. No question at all. Because I, I, I think it, I think it is just such a, it's such a beautifully evocative place, um, and and the beauty of it, it does mean a lot to me. I mean, I can remember doing the, they they have these sort of day night races which end in the dusk, and if you're lucky enough to do one of those, and you're out the back of the circuit, and the sun is coming down, and you're in some beautiful old racing car, um, the I mean, it's a genuine romance about it there is something which completely transcends the fact you happen to be racing a car there's an entire other dimension about being there at that time in that thing um and you just don't get that anywhere else um so yeah good with something fast and scary please that's great thank you that was cool um okay good well we'll leave that one there uh that's goodwood um please go and check out the app. That's all I want you to do. Just go and search the Intercooler app um, on the app stores. You'll find it. Um, Subscribe. You can do so for free for a month and cancel if you don't like it, but we think you'll stay with us. There's some good stuff on there. Um, And yeah, we'll be back to talk to you again on this podcast next week. Look forward to it. Thanks all. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 